I was 21 years old, just out of college, living with my mum and this incredibly hot, captivating American guy I had a summer fling with told me he wanted to come to London and visit me. Now, back then, I was what you call a good Greek girl. I'd never introduced any guy to my dad. And here I was, about to have a non-Greek American guy come into my world and shake everything up. I was unbelievably excited and, to tell you the truth, absolutely freaking petrified all at the same time. What if he wasn't the same guy I dated in the States? What if he didn't gel with my culture? What if my family didn't like him? I mean, he was staying for a week at my house. <laughs> yep, that damn voice trying to bring in the fear. The voice that thinks it's keeping you safe from potential harm, but really it's actually keeping you safe from anything new. So, I didn't listen. And when Tom proposed to me, people thought we were absolutely nuts. We had only been dating for nine months when he proposed and together less than two years before we got married. Oh, and did I mention I was only 22 years old? I was an absolute baby. Now, I was warned against marrying a man that has no cultural similarities as me, a man who lived across the other side of the world and a man who has no financial security. Now, my dad, who I love more than life itself, literally told Tom that he wasn't old fashioned and he is very okay with us just living together. Just don't marry her. Now look, I was really upset at the time, but looking back now, I actually totally get that he was just trying to protect me. That he came from a world where you marry in your circle. You marry Greek, you marry someone in a corporate job, local. And I was the first person that on that side of the family to ever marry out of my culture. So I actually get why for him, he couldn't see past that. But I've always been very firm and stubborn on knowing what I want and going after it in spite of the doubters. So I told my dad that despite the surface level differences, we were connected on a much deeper level. Despite our cultural differences and our cultural backgrounds, I was in love. And despite the stereotypes put upon me, I wasn't going to let them stop me. So today I wanted to do a different kind of show. I wanted to show you that your background doesn't have to hold you back. I wanted to show you that the stereotypes put upon you, you don't have to listen to them. But don't take it from me. In celebration of International Women's Day, I've put together clips from women all over the world, women who didn't let their background stop them. So guys, lean in, take notes, and get ready to ditch the stereotypes. Welcome to Women of Impact. I'm Lisa Billiou, and I went from housewife to co-founder of the billion-dollar company Quest Nutrition, and now president of Impact Theory. Our mission with this show is to empower you and all women to recognize that you really can become the hero of your own life. Welcome to Women of Impact. I was going to fight for me by Andrea Nevado, award-winning actress. Well, I think uh, as children, we look up to the adults in our world, whether it's in media or in our immediate family, and we're looking for inspiration, we're looking for something to hold on to, we're looking for something to strive for, and we're usually looking for ourselves. We want to see ourselves. Uh, and if you uh, grow up in a, in a place that doesn't really value who, who you embody, maybe your culture um, or race or anything like that, the subliminal message is that you have no value, that you're not important. 
Um, so that's a very painful thing to think as a child. And so when I finally booked Jane the Virgin, and as the series develops and I start to see these Latina characters who are held in this beautiful positive light with flaws mm -hmm. and um, revered on some level, and then the, just the response from the public, it, it validated the little girl in me who's still very much there, who still wants to be valued and heard and seen and loved. Um, I'm gonna start getting emotional. It's like, I, I realized, I was like, oh my God, Jane the Virgin was what I needed when I was growing up. I really, really needed that. It would have made a big difference, but it's okay because what I realized was that wasn't supposed to be my journey. My journey was supposed to feel the negative impact of that, strive to value myself, to put myself forward, to pick me before society or anything was gonna pick me. And I was gonna fight for me. And through doing that, I ended up booking Jane the Virgin and having an impact on people who were like me, who needed to see themselves being reflected in a positive light, who needed to see it to be it. And so I see the value in not having because I now can come, come from the, the fight and tell the story, you know, tell the story and put people on the map. And that's so important to me. Um, I definitely want to dive deep into your story because mm -hmm. what I find so interesting is you had every opportunity to fail. I did, you had every yeah. opportunity to stop. I did. Um, so one thing that immediately comes to mind is there's a statistic that I'd heard where um, a person's success is not equating to somebody's IQ. It actually equates to the zip code they grew up in. Yeah. Let that sink in for a second. Success is directly equated to the zip code you grew up in, mm -hmm. which we have no control over. Exactly. And I heard an interview with you, and I heard you say that the biggest dream you had in those times where you wanted a place with stairs. I wanted a house. I wanted to grow up in a house with stairs. Okay, so a house with stairs. Yeah. So talk to me about having a dream and then where you ended up changing that level of dream to go, okay, I want a house with stairs. And now, hey, I'm actually changing the way culture is seen on television. Mm -hmm. Like that's a freaking massive gap right there. Well, I wish I could say that I was intentional, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. um, pursuing an acting career to make an impact. I, I was, I wanted to make an impact on my life. Okay. <laughs> You know? I love that. And that's the truth. I mean, I was just taking care of myself. Uh, and I, I used to think that deciding to be an actress was kind of like a selfish career, mm. you know, because it's very, you know, self-focused. It's about your looks. and It's about me, 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 me. And I really believe that. But one of my best friends, she kind of pointed out to me how it's actually a ministry. And it's a responsibility. You have a platform, even if it's just for an audience of one mm. or the audience of yourself, the little ones inside of you. Mm. And so what I was doing was trying to make an impact on the little girl inside of me who felt that she wasn't valued. And so to me, acting was that, was, was picking me, choosing me. Uh, it was saying, yeah, I have value too. Yeah, I don't see myself on TV and film much, but you know what, I'm gonna still show up anyway. I know the odds are stacked against me, but do you wanna try and see what happens and maybe it'll be a success? Or do you wanna 
guarantee that you don't have success. All of my life, I knew I wanted to do something more. Anusha Ansari, CEO of the XPRIZE. Let's start with you're this little girl with a dream. Mm -hmm. And at that age, I'm sure, in Iran, dreaming of space must have been so out of this world. Um, and I actually want to start with a quote of yours that you say. Following your dreams is always a challenge, but I wouldn't want to live it any other way. <laughs> so talk to me about the realities of that challenge. Um, and in fact, let's start from there. Well, as a young child in Iran, it was hard for anyone to believe that going to space is even a possibility in my lifetime. I uh, looked at possibility of becoming an astronaut, going to NASA. I didn't even speak English, so that was, you know, not very likely. Um, and uh, I was from Iran, not a U.S. citizen. It was right after the hostage crisis. The relationships were not good. So things didn't look that good. But I was determined. I had this thing in my heart that told me that this is what I, meant, I was meant to do and I wanted to do, and, and I wasn't ready to give up on it. So I said, well, I'll put it on hold. I put it on hold for 40 years, and I um, finally was able to make it come true in 2006. And it was a long, windy road together. It wasn't a straight path. It wasn't like I'm going to do step one, two, three together. But it was always sort of having this, you know, sort of goal, this target in front of me that no matter how far I uh, got from it, I knew that I'm going to change direction at some point in my life and go toward it. And, and just having that sort of at my eyesight all the time, um, having it in my heart, that, that uh, you know, desire and that, you know, small steps toward it was what allowed me eventually to get there. It's always easy to make an excuse. From the smallest thing to the largest thing, you can always find a reason why you can't do it or it's not going to be done, it's not going to be good. So finding excuses is the easiest thing in the world. The point is, do you want it? Do you want it bad enough that despite all the challenges, all the problems, that you will find a way, you will find a solution? And I think you know, I'm an engineer also, and engineers are uh, very much about problem solving and solution oriented. So I focus on, yes, there are problems, but let's forget about focusing on where the problems are without thinking of the solution. Let's find the problems and let's find the solutions as well. Yeah, I love that. There's the um, most successful people that I talk to, I always find that, you know, if, the, if you approach a door and it's locked, then you try to get the sledgehammer and you bust the door open. If that still doesn't work, you go find the back door window yeah. or the back window and you get a brick and yeah. you smash the glass. Um, so that obviously gives the clear example of how you've gotten to this point. But even just not being able to speak the language... Um, how did you overcome that and build, I mean, did it affect your confidence at first? Yes. So, um, you know, as a 16-year-old who didn't speak English, to come to a country which was, you know, it was the first time I left Iran, first of all, so I had no idea what to expect. The culture was completely different. The country was completely different. So to be honest with you, I was depressed. I wanted to go back to Iran. But also, you know, I knew that all of my life, I knew that I wanted to do something more. I wanted to contribute something to this world. I wanted to make my mark on this world. And uh, my approach to it, my 
you know, sort of view into how I can make a difference in this world was through the eyes of science. Mm. I didn't know how that would happen, but I continuously looked for the opportunity to invent something, you know, really amazing for the world. And that's, I think, it's been a driving force in my life uh, through my childhood and then adulthood and then, um, you know, my career. When I came to U.S., um, it was hard. It's, it was difficult to get adjusted. You know, just look at teenagers. As a teenager, you're always, mm-hmm. you know, um, having your own set of problems of coming of age. And now add on top of that a new culture, new language, a new place to live. And it's the sense of survival that kicks in. Mm-hmm. A lot of immigrants actually, I think, um, become successful mostly because their survival kicks in and it's like, okay, I'm here, I have to survive, I have to make a new life. And then it's been just uh, nonstop driving myself and propelling myself forward to get to the next step. It wasn't always so easy, but it was never impossible. Noor Tagori, award-winning journalist. So I put on the hijab when I was 16, um, and it was just amidst this like identity crisis. Like No one in my family thought I was going to keep it on. Like, you can't be on TV with it on, and that's the one thing that I knew I wanted to do since I was a kid. So when I did put it on, I was like, maybe this is going to give me the same strength that I see, like, in my mom and my sister and my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe this is, like, the thing that I need that's going to make me feel stronger. And so I put it on, and right after I put it on, I ended up getting a job offer at a newspaper, and I was like, wait, maybe I can still do this, like, accomplish, accomplish this dream while wearing it. And so I started college at 16 and I made a promise on my first day of school that I would uh, do any and everything that felt true to me. Like I wanted to make sure that I was joining every club, I was doing every activity. Um, And eventually every single step that I took to stay true to myself led me to jobs in radio and then jobs in television. Um, And I eventually like got my first job at a local television station simply from like maintaining this sense of identity and strength and storytelling. And I also realized that I would have to be the absolute best journalist possible so that people wouldn't just shoo me away when I applied. And I had, I found mentors who wanted to train me to literally be so good at my skills that no one could ever say no to me. And part of me has to give credit to the fact that like, because I put on the hijab, I made sure I like maximized on my potential because there's a chance that if I never put it on that I would have been like, oh, I can just be like a good journalist and I'll still get a job and I wouldn't have like felt like the fire to work so hard. And so the second you own your 100% like version of yourself, whatever is true to yourself, and you realize that maybe that doesn't fit in with society's typical standards, especially when it comes to television because everybody's cookie cutter looks the same. When it comes to news reporting, you have to carry your, have certain outfits, certain no jewelry, certain hairstyles, whatever it is. So if you are different in any way, you have to be really good at what you do for people to make sure that they're not too terrified of you. And luckily we're in a time right now where like, like diversity is celebrated, inclusion is celebrated, and we've recognized there are strengths. But I don't think that we've recognized the strengths far enough where it's not just like, oh, we have to fill in our diversity quota and we have to make sure that we have different looking people instead of seeing, hey, actually, if we have diversity on our team and in our newsrooms, 
we will be better reporters, we will be better uh, community service members, we will be better people in general and will grow stronger. And I think people fear what they don't know a lot of times and therefore you stifle your community's growth. And so once you see past that, you realize, oh wait, there are some really incredible people who I can learn from. And you should always be in a room filled with people where you can learn from because that's the only way you're going to grow as a company, as a newsroom, as a brand, and whatever it is. Um, because you have to be exposed to those perspectives, those ways of thoughts, those backgrounds, those stories. And so once I, and I think that this dream that I had was only possible now because of what we were doing today and where we are today. Like my, I was shadowing a journalist at a local station and I sat at the anchor desk, she took a picture and I posted it on Facebook. I said, this is what my dream looks like. And the photo went viral. And because the photo went viral, I got access to mentors. I had like people reaching out to me with support. I had um, people asking for interviews. I had people asking me to speak. And, and I had access to like a global community filled with people who wanted the same for themselves and their communities. And so it really was a timing thing because even then I had people who were reaching out to me saying, hey, like, I just want you to know, like, this isn't going to happen. Like, it's always the hijab or the job. Like, I've tried this. I've tried this. It doesn't work. You either become a producer or you have to take off your scarf. And I was like, you know what? Like, thank you. But I really think that this is, there's like, a, this is time. It's time for this. And I always try to like, make sure I remember to give credit to all of the people who were clawing at the door, who were banging at the door, who were sitting here and, and, and fighting for this. So that when I got to the door, I could just push in and walk through. And it wasn't always so easy, but it was never impossible. I never, ever, ever thought like, there's no way I could do this. My parents growing up always encouraged me in becoming a storyteller and a journalist. Like my dad would put me in front of the news and try to like have intellectual conversations with me as a kid. My mom would drive me to camps and internships. And they would always tell me I was going to be a great journalist before I even knew what that term meant. And this is something I've just recently reflected on, but they're the only two people growing up where you know, like, I knew that they would never lie to me. And so if my mom was going to tell me I was going to be bigger than Oprah one day, I could never be like, that's not true. Mm -hmm. But if this, like, older white guy was telling me I'm never going to be on television because of what I'm going to wear, I'm just going to think, like, well, how, why would I trust you? Mm -hmm. You don't know me. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know my skill. You know nothing about me, and you're making this assumption. I'm going to sit here and believe the people that I trust more than anything. And maybe that was a very naive like way of thinking, but it holds true to me today because I think that the confidence that I had and the drive that I had was built from like the surrounding myself with people who were like, oh, 100%, you got this, anything you want. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion 
billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is a negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. It's impossible for humans to fail. Sabrina Kay, founder of the Art Institute. But take me back to when you first come to the States. You're 19 years old. You don't speak a word of English and you find yourself pregnant. How do you get through that what were your thoughts in fact because of the pressures of your culture must have been extreme yeah Um, I grew up in South Korea where fear is actually embedded in our culture the fear of not being good enough fear of not being the best fear of disappointing your parents fear of not doing the right thing that is always in the culture and I grew up you know after the war Um, where it was a third world country. If you go back now, Korea is like New York and steroids. Mm. It's an amazing country. But, you know, at that time, it was a very poor third world country. Mm. We were eating dirts on the street. But our family was not that poor. So upper middle class Korean family is extremely ambitious. And my mother trained me to marry the best guy possible to be a wife because that's the best career a woman can have in Korea at that time. I was trained to stay virgin, go to great university, either study home economics or something, a great major like English or Korean so that I can be a great mother Mm. to my children. So that was kind of the belief I had. So your education for you was to then be able to teach your kids? Yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. Because the stupid moms cannot teach their kids right. to be smart children. So, you know, like women who graduate from really good universities in Korea are very desirable um, as a wife. 
and also being a virgin was it's critically important. It's like one of the major ingredients um, to be a, to be married to yeah. the right guy. And uh, my mother was just so holding on to that belief. Uh, I was not allowed to talk to any boys until I was 18 years old. So when I came to America, I thought, you know, not only I'm going to talk to all the boys, I'm going to talk to American boys. <laughs> you know? So you should live with Bradley Parker. <laughs> I mean, those were like, okay, I'm going to talk to those guys. Um, I didn't get to do that because one, I didn't speak any English, and two, life that we arrived was not the right life that was promised to me or I expected. Mm -hmm. We had no money and uh, my father who came to the States about three years before us and was supposed to pave the road, he tried, but he couldn't make anything of it. So he was uh, working as a janitor for a janitorial company mm -hmm. and we all whole family went and became janitors. That was uh, our first introduction to America. Take me through when you're calling up, you're making that first call um, that started off the Art Institute. What took you from being the person that was like, I'm just gonna be a mother taking care of my kid to I need to do something for me? Or was it for you? It was not for me. Uh, it was just driven by fear that my daughter and I were going to be out on the street. Mm. Um, I didn't get any child support and there was like no money in the house. My parents' business was not doing well and they were willing to take care of my daughter for me. So we all moved in together mm. in one house and they were my babysitters. So now not only I am responsible for my daughter, I'm responsible for my parents. Wow. It's, it, it wasn't like, you know, when you have no choice, human beings are very resilient and we are the smartest animal on earth. Look what we've achieved. Mm. And I think what, when it fails is when that human decides to fail and you choose that failure. If you don't choose the failure, you don't quit. It's impossible for human to fail. And I think, you know, my training of being in constant fear but never was allowed to quit. Mm. I was never allowed to quit. So when you are fearful, your hypervigilance give you that sharp mind. When I saw the opportunity to do the TV work, I saw this is a free marketing. Mm. And I became the spokesperson for, for that very moment. And then after that, the TV station gave me my own TV show. I was Oprah Winfrey of Koreatown. We need to be true to ourselves and what we believe in. Brenda Gilbert, co-founder of Bron. So take me back to your child, you're in Canada, you feel like you're the odd one out. How do you go from that to building a media juggernaut? Wow, that, that's, a, that's a huge question, um, obviously. So how it started out in terms of me as a child, I was, mm. I was bullied and discriminated against, um, but I always had my head in a book and I always liked school. And so I always did well. And I also had a creative side to me. I also liked to draw and I liked to sew and, and those types of things. So I think that was my saving grace is I always wanted to learn. And um, 
I didn't know exactly what I was going to be, but what I was maybe eventually going to become. Um, I always had empathy for people. I always felt sorry for people. Um, in, when I was about in grade one, there was a grade seven-year-old who was kicking around three kittens. And I didn't realize at the time that I had the empathy and the kindness. I just did what I thought was right. And I went up to him and I said, stop. And he turned around and kicked me really hard in the back and called me a nigger and told me to go away. So I ran home, you know, crying because I was in so much pain. Um, and that still, I, I still did what I had to do. You know, I still went to school the next day. I did, you know, certain things. And my, my parents expected a lot of me. Um, that's really made me who I am today in terms of multitasking, the ability to run a company, the ability to have, you know, multiple children and to really support them. Um, so, you know, I, I met my husband, uh, I guess, 22 and a half years ago. And what really inspired me about him is he thought globally. He was much more the entrepreneur than I was. I was much more, I need to do this and make sure that the overhead is covered and things like that. Maybe take a little bit of a risk, but make sure that everything is covered. And he's like, you know what, if you take a big risk, you know, you can see much more, right? You can achieve much more. Uh, over time, obviously, I become that entrepreneur. What has kept me in the game, what has kept me in business, what has kept me to be true to myself is the passion mm. for storytelling. Um, I call it the three or four Ps. So the passion, the art form, that's what gets me up in the morning and to drive me to do what I'm doing. The perseverance, the patience, and the persistence. Because in this industry, I've been told, it's much more riskier than stocks. But if you really love what you're doing, you keep at it and you get knocked down time and time again. And my husband and I, um, we've got up. We faltered, right? We didn't always have, you know, this beautiful home and beautiful things and that. Um, so I also believe that we need to be true to ourselves and what we believe in. Um, and Lisa, you posted something about being happy. What makes you mm -hmm. happy? You know, initially it could be something monetary or something that's very superficial. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's more so the passion and wanting to help people. Mm. That's very clear that you did it as a child and that you do it now. How do you hold on to that? So I'm trying to picture you as this young child running home from school. Obviously, you stood up because you really were empathetic to these kittens. A boy that was, I'm sure, t 10 times taller than you or bigger than you, and you stood up to it. And it seems like you're saying th that's exactly what you keep doing is like looking for those moments to stand up for what you believe in. How do you, though, in those moments where you're so upset and you're crying, mm. um, do you not just then give up or go, wow, that really sucked. A boy just kicked me in the back. I'm never going to do that again. Mm -hmm. um, but you didn't. You kind of lent into it. Mm -hmm. It was, it was very difficult, right? You, you don't, I don't always think about things in terms mm. of helping people. I just go and do it. Mm. There's a lot of people that complain about the world and complain about poverty, uh, mass incarceration, racial profiling, and things like that. I feel, as a woman of color, is my job hasn't been as difficult as people that lived in the 1800s, you know, the 19, early 1900s and things like that. And you think about the 1960s with Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, they had much more challenges than I did. Mm. So I always think that there's always someone worse off than me. That's what drives me. I don't think of something as being challenging. Of course, there are times that it's very difficult. It's hard to get out of bed. But I think of it as an opportunity, an opportunity to help people, right? Mm. And that's, that's the key. 
That's the key for me to be driven and motivated, not just the passion for what I do, but the passion for life and for people. It's time for you to welcome happiness by Najwa Zibayan, author. Your story is incredible. And where I want to start is the fact that you didn't feel like you belonged anywhere. Mm-hmm. A lot of people fight that, not knowing where they belong. Talk me through how you felt and then how you got out of that. Mm-hmm. I think we tend to believe that home is a house, a physical place where you can stay. When really home is the place where your soul feels like it belongs, where you feel like you can be unapologetically yourself and you are being loved for who you are. A place where you don't have to work hard just to be loved. And uh, because my parents were traveling between Lebanon and Canada from the age of, from my age of eight to 16, I had to live with multiple relatives. And it's, it never, to me, it's never like, oh, they treated me badly. Mm-hmm. It's not like that at all. It's just my own internal feelings of displacement and not knowing where home really is. And I love Lebanon. It's my home country. I really do love it, but it never felt like home. So then when I, when I moved to Canada, I remember the first day a teacher saw me, and I used to cover my hat at the time, my hair, and uh, she, she said to me, oh, I know who you'll mix well with. So she took me to a group of girls who also wore the hijab at the time. And I remember standing amongst them thinking, I don't belong here. Really? Yeah, because I, it was such a cultural shock for me that even they looked like me, but they were, most of them, born and raised in Canada. I come from a village of a thousand people. You know, we, we, everybody there was Muslim. Everybody there was, you know, following the same kind of lifestyle. Mm. And here I was in a brand new country where there are different rules and there are different ways that even people who resemble me uh, live differently um, within those. It never even dawned on me <laughs> that that would be the case. Like, yeah. That's such a powerful message of like, we all make assumptions. We do. Yeah. Yes. So did you tell people like, yeah, this doesn't feel no, like my group? Because or? I just, I was very quiet. I remember not going to the cafeteria of my school, of my high school, mm-hmm. until the second semester of that year. And I only went once because a friend of mine needed to get something for lunch. I never mixed with people. I stayed in the library at lunch, mm-hmm. did my homework for the next day. And that was it. I just never mixed with people. Never. It was such a lonely time. Was it that like for you safety was standing back and keeping to yourself? Yes. It was safety and also fear. Okay. It was fear that I would be judged for mm. who I was. And I and I, I think part of me didn't even want approval. Part of me had given up on mm. being part of something that I just wanted to go to class and go home. And that was it. When I reflect back on those years, I see them in black and white yeah. because they were very, very much, there was no, there was, there was no feeling of joy or feeling of um, being present. It was just getting by, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that was my life. It was just getting by and hopefully one day happiness will come. 
because that's what everybody tells you is that it comes at some point go to school get a job get married and then happiness will come mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, I've got an amazing quote I've actually got a ton of quotes <laughs> yeah. from you but um, I want to talk about pain you wrote something about it that just hit me hard you said when pain knocks on your door mm. let it in yeah. if you don't it will knock harder and harder its voice will become louder and louder so let it in spend time with it understand it then walk it to the door and let it leave because it's time for you to welcome happiness yeah <laughs> um were you able to do that is that what you did and then if so how do you do that i struggled for a very long time you can see i'm getting emotional just hearing that because i remember when i wrote it i struggled for a long time with accepting that what i went through was painful because instead of accepting that I went through a painful experience, I accepted that something was wrong with me and that I had to fix myself and that I had to fix the way I was thinking about things. So I was in denial of what happened to me, sort of like a defense mechanism against knowing what needs to be done to resolve mm. that pain. And so I, I resisted allowing myself to see it as something that wasn't my fault and I kept it at the door and you know it goes from being on your mind for an hour a day to being on your mind two hours a day to being on your mind all the time when you fall asleep when you wake up you're constantly tunnel visioned on that pain and it feels like physical pain that's how bad it becomes so if you don't allow it, it's going to keep knocking. It'll keep knocking. And if you don't just say, you know what? Life has thrown pain at me. I can't keep ignoring it. I have to allow it in. I have to understand why it hurts so much. And that's difficult. No one wants to feel pain. No one wants to be in pain. Mm -hmm. But this is the nature of life. So I treat it as a visitor. I say, you're welcome in, but you're not welcome to stay. You're welcome to have a tea with me. We'll talk about this and then you leave. And then I have another visitor, which is happiness. So that's why I wrote that poem, because I really believe that if pain is knocking on your door and you deal with the pain and take it out of the way, you're allowing room for yourself to see and feel that happiness that's waiting at your door. All right, guys, I really hope you enjoyed those clips. If this episode brought you value, please, please do click that subscribe button and share. And until next time, be the hero of your own life. Peace out.